Take out your Bibles if you haven't done so already and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5. I wouldn't ask for any amens, but we are done with giving month. <laughs> we are back in the book of Acts. Uh, we've had quite a break from the book of Acts, not only because we took all of February, uh, or January rather, to talk about giving, uh, but also because of the holiday season, Christmas and all of that before, and we spent a lot of time looking at uh, you know, that the Christmas story as the Bible gives it to us. And so the last time we were in the book of Acts together was November. So it's been a while, although it feels like it was just yesterday. So let me help you kind of get back to where we were. Last time we finished Acts chapter 4. We finished Acts chapter 4. And just as a reminder for those, for all of us here, the the verses and the chapters, that's not inspired. That was put in to be a helpful tool. They kind of, you know, they literally just turned in as the as Jesus did in the scroll of Isaiah. There was no chapter and verse back then. Uh, so verses and chapters were added to help us be able to navigate the scriptures and be able to reference verses like John 3.16, and we all know what that verse is and all of that. Uh, and it was a helpful tool, but sometimes the breaks are a little bit curious. For example, Acts chapter 4 stops right in the middle of the story. Okay, so we stopped in Acts chapter 4, how Barnabas, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke doesn't stop there. Luke keeps on going, and he's continuing on in the, his description of the Spirit-filled church there in Jerusalem and all that was happening in that church in Jerusalem. So we started the sermon, the Spirit-filled church. We got through Acts chapter 4 being part 1, and this is part two this morning, and there will be a part three also. So we're just going to get one main point and uh, four subpoints this morning, but we're going to focus in on 11 verses in chapter five, picking up with Luke's description of what this spirit-filled church in Jerusalem looked like. Just as a reminder, they were a unified church. They had all things in common. They were striving together. They were of one accord, of one mind. They were a gospel-preaching church. The Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. They were a gracious church and a very generous church where Luke left off at the end of chapter 4 there. And what he'll continue with is during this time in the church of Jerusalem, people had needs. It cost something to be a professing Christian in Jerusalem. And so there were those in the church that had material, physical needs. And so what people in the church did is they took of their assets, some of them had land and, and other things, and they sold that and they gave that to the apostles to be uh, to meet these needs within the church. There was just a generous, gracious spirit in this church so that all the needs were met. But the church in Jerusalem was not a perfect church. It wasn't a perfect church. You ever heard that uh, old cliche, if you find the perfect church, don't join it? You'll just ruin it, right? <laughs> The church in Jerusalem was spirit-filled, they were gospel-preaching, they were unified, they were gracious, they were generous, they were not perfect. And churches are imperfect because they are filled with people. They're filled with people. 
Every church ought to endeavor to walk in the power of the Spirit. Every church ought to do everything they can to proclaim the truth of the Word of God and live according to that, church, uh, that truth. But even this church in Jerusalem, as incredible as it was, was not a perfect church. It had those within its congregation that weren't uh, sincere in their motives. They were just playing church. They were self-serving. They had their own agenda. I mean, this church in Jerusalem had stood strong in the face of opposition. They were literally told, do not preach or speak in the name of Jesus. And yet they did anyway. They were of, of one heart and one mind. They were of one purpose. They saw miracles happening every single day. But as Warren Wearsby wrote in his book, Something Happens, Happens When Churches Pray, the devil always fights the church when the church is on the move. Charles Spurgeon used to say that Satan never kicks a dead horse. Satan knew that the church was on the move, so he attacked it. In Acts chapter 2, we read that 3,000 people were converted. Then what happened? According to Acts 4, Satan came like a lion and had the apostles threatened. In chapter 5, Satan comes like a serpent, influencing Ananias and Sapphira to infect the church with their lying and hypocrisy. If Satan cannot win by persecution from the outside, he will try pollution on the inside. Another pastor that I enjoy said, if we were to build an outhouse, Satan would fight it. When the church is on the move, when it's busy, Satan opposes it. And so let's see how the Spirit-filled church handles these problems in Acts 5. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Verses 1 through 13. You can follow along with me as I Read. It says, again, we're picking up with all of these church members that were selling their assets, selling their land so that needs would be met. And they were literally laying the money at the apostles' feet. Very generous time. It says, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. That means he died. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Verse 6, And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thine husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. 
And of the rest, there's no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. What really matters to God our Father? Our actions or our attitudes? Our methods are our motives. God is the only one that can see our motives. God is the only one that knows our hearts and he weighs our actions according to our intentions. Are your motives, are your intentions, especially in your role as a member of this church, are they pleasing in his sight? Let's dig a little deeper in Acts chapter 5 and consider first there the, the main point we'll get to today, a cheap imitation. A cheap imitation. There is no church alive that is not immune from people just, or that is immune rather, that from people that go through the motions in order to seem more spiritual than they actually are. That's just a part of church life. And that is essentially what this story in Acts chapter 5 is. It's a sequel to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Remember that. You can look there in your Bibles. It says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither were it said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a continuation of what's going on there. This is a sequel to that. And the church as a whole was being incredibly generous and gracious with one another, and needs were being met, and everyone was on the same page, and the church was just had this, this was a great period in their history. What a great time to be in church, to come, to, to come together and see that so-and-so's need has been met, and so-and-so's need has been met, and see people moved by the Spirit to be generous givers. And although this church was composed of a wide range of people, some with great needs, none of the members lacked for anything because there was a community mindset in this church. They sold their things voluntarily. It doesn't mean that this, this was some sort of you know, socialist system. It just means that they saw the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they thought, you know what? God has blessed me. I can meet that need. They didn't think of it as, this is mine. I'm going to keep it, but rather that they could use it for the ministry. They took the cash from that liquidated asset and didn't put it in the hands of the apostles, but at the feet of the apostles, because these weren't personal gifts. These were contributions to the church, and the apostles were trustees over that uh, giving. They were viewed in the same light. This giving was viewed in the same light as giving gifts to the treasury, as bringing money and placing it on the altar, making an offering. They weren't giving to the apostles. They were giving to God. And that's how the church viewed this giving. So one after another, someone owned something and then sold it and gave all the money from the sale to the apostles to distribute as was necessary. So here's Ananias and Sapphira, and the Bible tells us they have land themselves. 
and they hatch a conspiracy. A conspiracy. Verses 1 and 2 says, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira hatched a plan. They, they saw the recognition that these generous, uh, grace-giving Christians were receiving. They saw the awe and the wonder in the church. And they wanted some of that for themselves. They didn't want to be left out. But they weren't willing to sacrifice in order to give to the church. So they devised a plan together that would allow them to eat their cake and have it too. We want the recognition. We want the praise. We want to appear generous. And it was their intention to give all appearances of sacrifice and generosity without actually inconveniencing themselves. So what they decided to do is they would sell the piece of land that they owned, but keep back a portion of the money that they received for it. But what's important for us to realize is it's implied by the questions that Peter poses to them that they had somehow publicly claimed and communicated that just like Barnabas and all the others, we also are giving all of the price of our property to the church. Somehow, it doesn't say how they did it, but somehow they made it seem as if or declared as if they had given the whole price of it, when in reality, they were holding back a portion of it for themselves. It's interesting to study what the Bible says about what they did in verses 1 and 2, where it says, A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. The word kept back there literally means to pilfer, to purloin, to embezzle. As one scholar pointed out, you can't embezzle your own money. The language that that the Bible uses to describe what they did is they were embezzling from the offering plate by claiming to give more than they actually had. They claimed that we've put all of it in when in reality they had not. If you were to pick up a copy of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around in Jesus' day, It's interesting to discover that they used the same word to describe another thief. Joshua 7 verse 1 says, The children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. and The anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Achan pilfered trinkets that were destined for the house of the Lord, and he polluted the whole camp with his sin. Ananias pilfered money that was destined for the church of Christ and polluted the church with that sin. Both of them were embezzling from something that was sacred, and both of them suffered similar fates. They were killed. This married couple conspired together to deceive the church and the apostles by keeping back a portion for themselves. Many have considered what their motivation might have been for doing so. And one, uh, one author suggested that the possibility is that the couple held back what is called the ketubah, 
or the portion that belonged to Sapphira as her bridal rights. This portion of the land's value would be awarded to her in the event that she were either divorced or widowed. So maybe they just held back Sapphira's part to make sure that she would be taken care of. Perhaps they were trying to save some of the money for a rainy day. Maybe they were counting on that land to fund their retirement years. Whatever the reason, as one man said, they wanted praise for giving all, and yet they took care of themselves by keeping some. That's what they did. They conspired together. It's fascinating. Ananias' name means God is gracious. But he didn't have enough faith in the graciousness of God to be extraordinarily generous. He kept back a portion for himself and lied about it to the church. And though the conspiracy was made in secret, their true, to, true motivations are instantly obvious. Someone once said that people's conduct with regard to money shows how their minds work and what their real motives are because the heart and the purse are seldom far apart. Or as Jesus put it, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It reveals their motivation. They conspired and they hatched a secret plan, but they were caught. They were caught. The conspiracy, and they were caught. Verses 3 through 6, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? And to keep back part of the price of the land, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. Peter, under the influence of the Spirit of God, having the gift of prophecy, I believe, knew instantly, immediately what had taken place. And in confronting Ananias, Peter reveals some interesting details regarding Ananias's sin. We discover that Satan had filled Ananias's heart. He had influenced Ananias to try this deception to hatch this conspiracy. As we mentioned already, he had already, the devil had already opposed the church by bringing on persecution to the religious leaders of the day. But all of that threatening did not deter the apostles at all from spreading the gospel and serving Christ. So how does the devil then gain a foothold and entrance into the church? Through a member of the church. In dwelling on this scheme, in nursing his own pride, the devil gained a foothold and ananized his heart and influenced him to sin. James 1 says, Every man is tempted, in verse 14, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then with lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Satan filled, influenced the heart of Ananias just as he had filled the heart of Judas. And like Judas, the love of money was their downfall. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, we already quoted this in giving month, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, 
which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That word in verse 3, filled, has the idea of controlling or influencing. It's the very same word we find in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Ananias, a church member, was influenced, filled by Satan and not by the Holy Spirit of God. And so Peter asked Ananias, why? Why have you allowed this? Though the devil was involved, notice the responsibility fell completely on Ananias for allowing the devil to gain entrance into his life. Ananias could not claim, well, the devil made me do it. Because even though Peter said, Satan has filled your heart in this matter, all of the responsibility fell on Ananias for allowing this to happen. A believer that does not walk in the Spirit, who does not reckon himself dead to sin, who nurses and cherishes his own batch of wickedness, even if no one else could possibly know, is opening up the door wide for the adversary, for Satan. Ephesians 4.27 says, Neither give place to the devil. We have an enemy. He is seeking, he is hunting, he is waiting for an opportunity afforded him by a Christian who is weak in the faith and not walking in the Spirit. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And also notice the crux of Ananias' sin. He lied. That was the sin. He lied. The land was his own. Nobody forced him to sell the land. It wasn't a church mandate. If any of you have some assets that you could sell, you need to go sell them right now and bring the money to the church. This was not a rule that the apostles put in place. Ananias' sin was that he lied. There is no sin in ownership. There is no sin in wealth. Peter says the price of the land was yours. No one forced you to pledge all of it. You could have given some. There's no sin in giving less than others. There's no sin in saving for a rainy day. Ananias' sin was deception, lying. His sin was putting on a facade. His sin was, if you will, playing church. What does God think of those Christians who just go through the motions? Is it enough to God that we dress nice, attend regularly, give occasionally, sing loudly and smile warmly? Is it enough that we paint ourselves outwardly with standards of living while inwardly we're not living by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us? Is it enough for God that we do all the things publicly to prove just how spiritual we are, but we really have no power over our own passions and pride? God gives us his opinion of hypocrisy right at the beginning of the early church. What does God think of those Christians who, by all appearances, are just as in love with Jesus and his church as the next man, but inwardly are being influenced by the devil. Ask Ananias, what matters, the methods or the motives? Your actions or your attitude? 
And then think about the object of his deceit. Who was Ananias lying to? Whom was he attempting to deceive? Look what Peter says in Acts 5, verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? And to keep back part of the price of the land, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. In attempting to impress the church, Ananias was attempting to deceive the Holy Spirit, who is God. Who do you think you're fooling when you play church? or when you put on a spiritual show. You do far more than trying to deceive the church body or the pastor. You do your dead level best to deceive God himself who sees your heart. 1 John 1, 5 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And do not the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, 3 through 4 says, Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What does God do in Ananias' case? He kills him. And Acts 5, 5 and 6 says, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and died. He gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. What had the church prayed for? They had prayed for the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But in order for that power to remain, the purity of the church had to be preserved. And God here in Acts 5 purifies his church. You can tell that the church recognized that Ananias' death was chastisement by God by the way they reacted to it. They buried him quietly and quickly. In that day, funerals were a, a, a community affair. Mourners were hired for the event. A funeral procession would be held. They would tear their clothes. They would cover their heads. They would take off their shoes. None of that happens for Ananias. One commentator wrote, The manner in which his funeral was handled would likewise indicate that divine judgment was seen in the whole affair. The young men arose, wrapped up his body, carried him outside the city to bury him. They wasted no time in ceremony, for they were back in three hours. This was most unusual procedure. Burials were often fairly hasty in Palestine, but not that hasty. Not that is, except for death under unusual circumstances, such as suicides and criminals and judgments from God. Ananias was given no dignity in death because the church recognized this was divine punishment. He was caught in his conspiracy. And then notice the co-conspirator, verses 7 through 10. It was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Ananias was not alone in his guilt. His wife had fully committed to this deception as well. Three hours after Ananias' death, Sapphira comes in. We uh, don't know where all of this takes place. They could have been meeting still at Solomon's porch in the temple uh, courtyards there. We don't know who all was there. We only have Peter and Sapphira given to us by name. Why three hours later? Some believe that the Jewish hours of prayer were at intervals of three hours from one another. And that the Jewish Christians would have men's meetings and women's meetings at those hours of prayer. So perhaps Ananias had attended the previous meeting. And now his wife comes along to attend the next meeting of the church. She knew nothing of her husband's death, which is unfathomable in that day and age. Think about it. Your husband died in church and nobody told you. He had been buried in disgrace. Peter did not greet her with condolences. He didn't say, Sapphira, I got some bad news. He just asked a simple question. And in doing so, he allowed her to confess or to be condemned. And his question was, did you sell the land for this much money? Some believe that Peter pointed to the money that was at his feet. Sapphira, tell me, did you sell the land for this much? And she said, yes, that much. Her answer revealed her guilt. She maintained the lie. Peter was astonished, and his question is, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? That word, agreed together, carries with it the idea of sound. It's the same word from which we get our word symphony. Their souls were in tune in this lie. They agreed together to lie, to tempt the Spirit. That means to see how much you can get away with, to presume upon Him. Ananias and Sapphira presumed too much. And the sound of the sandals of the very young men that buried her husband could be heard approaching, and she falls down dead. And they walk in, and they see her, and they carry her out, and lay her face to face with her husband. Notice the consequence of all of this. Verses 11 through 13. We saw the conspiracy. They were caught, the co-conspirator, his wife, and then the consequence. Verse 11, great fear came upon all the church. And upon many has heard these things, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the resters, no man joined himself to them, but the people magnified them. I don't mean the consequence of their sin, that, that we've already gotten to. They were killed. But notice the consequence this had on the church and the community. Word of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira spread fast. And it wasn't limited to just the church. The church members were in awe. They knew that there was opposition outside the church. And now they realized the power of the accountability within the church. 
In killing Sapphira, God certified and validated the function, authority, and message of the church. It was far more important than perhaps they had realized up to this point. The purity of this church was literally life and death. The great fear there, as one word study said, is more than just reverent awe. Even for the believers, it involves the distressing apprehension that God had intervened in judgment. The alarming realization that he might do so again. And the terrifying fear that one's own life might be in jeopardy because of the sins that one has committed. Before their death, the book tells that the unity of the church uh, was strong. After their death, Acts once again goes on to describe the power of the Spirit in the church and the unity of that church. There was no room in this church for the sins of selfishness and deception. The Holy Spirit quickly rooted them out. Not only was the church in awe, but the community, the lost, the Jews were in awe also. According to verse 13, let me just break that down a little bit for you. The unbelieving dared not join the Christians. They had high opinions of the church. They respected the church, but they weren't willing to pretend to be one of them. No way. Robertson said of their dread at the death of Ananias and Sapphira that all of Jerusalem realized it was already a dangerous thing to be a follower of Christ unless one was willing to walk straight. And the Jewish community respected the church, but they kept their distance. Everywhere, genuine, God-fearing Christians are gathered together, you will find cheap imitations. People that are shallow, people whose religion only goes skin deep. And if God still dealt with hypocrisy today, as he did in Acts chapter 5, how do you think the membership roles across this country might be affected? How might our own church be affected? Obviously, the church in Acts was unique. It was a transitional time in church history, and God was directly confirming the authority of the church, the message of the church. He was dealing very directly with the church through the apostles. This was a special time in church history. There is no apostles today. The Spirit does not tell me who here is genuine and who is not. But that does not mean that God does not still hold his people accountable. The evangelist Dr. John R. Rice told the story of being invited to preach a revival meeting for a godly pastor. And for several months, Dr. Rice and this pastor had been planning the meeting, corresponded about the meeting, worked out a date in their schedules. And finally, they agreed upon a date. And the next Sunday, at the close of the service, the pastor got up and announced the date of the meetings to the church. As he did so, one of the men in the church, a deacon, stood to his feet and started walking down the aisle and pointed his finger at the pastor and said, Over my dead body will we have Dr. Rice in this church. The pastor was shocked that there was opposition. He didn't really know what to do, so he just closed the service in prayer. Months passed, and the pastor just said nothing more about it to the congregation. But behind the scenes, he continued as planned and kept the meetings on the schedule. He didn't even tell Dr. Rice, the evangelist, what had happened. The meetings were to start on a Monday night. 
And Dr. Rice tells how he arrived at the church that morning about 11 o'clock. And when he got there, he was surprised because the church parking lot was full. And the church was filled with people. So he parked a couple blocks away and walked through the front door to find people standing in the lobby, some looking through the windows in the, into the packed sanctuary. It was a funeral service for that deacon. And as Dr. Rice looked toward the front of the church, he saw a huge white banner stretched from one side to the other with large white uh, red letters that said, Welcome Dr. John R. Rice. And underneath that banner was a casket and the deacon's head resting on the pillow in that coffin directly under Rice, the name. His words had become prophetic in his own mouth. Over my dead body will we have Dr. Rice in this church. I don't know your heart. Sometimes I have trouble discerning my own heart. But God knows your heart very well. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, Every way of man is right, is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Let me ask you this. Is your faith more than skin deep? Is your Christian life more than just checking off boxes and going through the motions and, and fitting it into your schedule? Or is your life truly motivated by the love of Christ? Or is it motivated by the opinion of people? You might have convinced every person in this room that you are a faithful, God-loving Christian, but God knows your heart. And if God struck dead those in this church that were just acting like genuine spirit-led believers, would you still be standing at the close of the invitation? You know, this morning would be a great time to be honest with your Heavenly Father, to confess your shortcomings and start again. Because although He may not strike anyone dead this morning, he still takes it very, very seriously. I'm going to ask Joanna to come and play number 57 for us. Cleanse me, search me. We want to give you an opportunity this morning. I don't know your heart. I'm kind of glad I don't. But the Lord does. And perhaps he spoke to you about something in particular this morning. Would you take the time and confess that thing to him? Give that thing to him? Are you a genuine Christian? Let's take this time and pray.